This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we venture further into Isaiah and the days of Ahaz to see God's invitation to trust the story and warnings for what might happen if that invitation is not accepted. Yeah. Well, I took too long last time. We should just dive right in, Brent. Well, and funny thing that I noticed as I brought up the first passage for this, uh, Isaiah 7, we ended the last episode at the end of Isaiah 6. This is the very beginning of Isaiah 7. Nothing else in between here. And it says, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, so we're skipping right over Jotham. He doesn't get, (laughs) Isaiah is covering the reigns of these four kings and Jotham gets absolutely no coverage at all. So I don't know what happened to that guy, but Isaiah didn't have anything to say about it. Yeah, apparently, but it does, it does let us fit this in context. Um, We are dealing with a different king, a different, you could say imperial era or a different reign, at least a different, um, What's the word I'm looking for? A, a different regime, if you will. So, uh, yeah, it does it does help us place this historically. So, well noticed and well said. Okay, so into the text. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. All right. So Ahaz has this political situation and a very real one. I don't want to make this abstract or make light of this, but he's, he, he was, uh, he was attacked by his two. So Ahaz is going to be where Brent, just to help us align ourselves geographically where we're at in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. He is. So he's a part of the nation of Judah, Judah, and both the brothers in Israel to the North Samaria and then Syria uh, would be resin and and they're both they both have tried to attack and he was with able to kind of withstand that I'm sure he's probably not in great shape he and his people um, but he he kind of with withstood that those two onslaughts which were apparently independent but then word comes that the two have allied together and uh, I can't imagine how that would make you feel Brent but he's a little distraught at this news. And understandably so, if I were to give him the benefit of the doubt, yeah? Yeah, I mean, supposedly they serve the same God and all of a sudden they're breaking off to to ally with this pagan nation. Absolutely. It's, I mean, there's a lot of nuances and context to that, but yes, it's sure going to be a nerve-wracking political moment for him, to say the least. So uh, God shows up and has some things to say through Isaiah. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shear Yashub. Which means a remnant shall return. So Ooh. these prophets are always naming their kids these super weird names, or maybe it's a secondary name or whatever. We don't, we don't know and we <laughs> assume a whole lot, but he's got this at least nickname that speaks of a returning remnant, like... Isaiah's putting his faith in the promises of God and what God has told him just a chapter ago, which was a whole two kings ago, as you pointed out. And yet he had children and named his children uh, behind these promises of God and and what was coming in the future. Okay, go out, you and your son, Shear Yeshuv, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tavil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. All right, so into this sociopolitical moment of angst and all kinds of legitimate fear, God sends Isaiah to send this message. Just trust the story. Just trust the story, yes. Do nothing. I need you to just trust me and don't do anything. And, and I love that in the explanation, it says, within 65 years, Ephraim will not even be a people. And it's like, well, that's that's a long time for me to sit here and do nothing. I'm not sure where that falls in their timeline, but uh, 
this is not necessarily this is a challenge. I, I it's easy to sit back and critique these kings for trusting or not trusting, for obeying or disobeying. He finds himself in a really tricky situation, and it looks very, very dark and grim for him. And yet God says, I just need you to trust me. I need you to not do anything. Don't defend yourself. Don't go out to fight. Just trust me and let me deal with it. If you don't trust me, and there was that very clear call at the end. If you don't trust the story, or in the words here, if you if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. How did the NIV phrase that? If you do not stand? Yeah, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. All right. So Ahaz, there is no other third option here, which is which is the... That's the hard thing to imagine is God's not saying, hey, you got this option, this option. And if you don't, we'll kind of figure it out. It's you've got two options. You either trust this or you don't trust this. If you don't trust this, utter destruction. If you do trust this, you'll stand. But there's no middle ground. There's no hedging your bets. And that's the invitation, which is which is wild. And I love the imagery, like the do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. It's like, okay, they, because of the fierce anger of these guys, it's like, okay, well, they, I know it's scary. They burned really bright, but they're, they, they did too much. And now they're just these smoldering stubs. And so if you just, if you just stand firm in your faith, like you're, you're not going to be actually threatened by these guys because they don't have anything left. Great point. I do love that. Absolutely. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Asked okay, now I'm going to interrupt you. And I said I wasn't <laughs> going to, but I'm going to interrupt you because, and I don't want to make too much out of this. I don't know if this is the same in the prophets. El has been really good at teaching me that when you get into the prophets, when you get into poetry, when you get into the Psalms, sometimes the mechanics of Hebrew can change. So I don't know if this changes. I don't want to make, I'm not going to root anything here or anchor anything here, but I do see that literary device that we've talked about before that I learned from Foreman Brent, which is somebody is speaking and then we're told, and then they said, which implies what? Can you remember? Well, it implies there's a break, but in verse three, it says the Lord said to Isaiah. And then here in verse 10, it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. But it does say again. Yep. So what's going on with that? Yeah. Um, and, and and I I was wrestling with here at that juncture, if we were seeing a pause, as if Isaiah said nothing and God meets, because well, go ahead and read go ahead and read this section and then I'll and then I'll add my commentary. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? All right. So God is at the very least, no matter the other details that I was trying to parse out a moment ago, God at the very least is trying to meet Ahaz in his struggle, in his moment of, is he going to trust? Is he going to believe? Is he going to dis, is there disbelief? God meets him there and says, go ahead and, and ask me for something. Ask me for a test and I'll, f I think of Gideon and his fleece. Uh, I, I want to meet you. I want to help. I know this is, I know I'm asking the world of you <laughs> in a literal sense. Yeah, I, I know that I'm asking a lot. Uh, give me a test. I'll prove it. So God is offering this. Ahaz says what can sometimes be when you think about it, you're like, yeah, I thought we weren't supposed to test God. And yet the circumstances here are completely different. When the Israelites tested God in the desert, God asked them to do something. They said, we won't unless you. In this case, God's asking them to do something, and he's offering to give them some reassurance. So this isn't somebody putting God to the test, even though that's how Ahaz is trying to phrase it. And behind all of this sits this situation where I think Ahaz doesn't really want to know. He doesn't really want to put God to the test because he doesn't want the answer to be, shoot, I got to trust this. Because to trust this is going to be a huge test. And so I don't think he wants to test God because he has a hunch that God's going to come through and he knows what the answer is going to be. So here's God offering and Ahaz refusing. And that seems to get God, at least the prophet, pretty worked up about why are you why are you standing here not taking God up on his offer? You really need to make the right decision here. And, and that seems to be where we're at in the conversation. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. 
For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Ah, yes, the famous Christmas prophecy, Brent, (laughs) that we read every year. The virgin will give birth. Let me read Alter here. Doesn't mean the Alter's right, but let me read Alter's footnote. Here's Alter. Although this verse generated many centuries of Christological uh, readings emphasizing the virgin birth, the Hebrew Alma does not mean virgin, but rather young woman. And in Proverbs, the Alma is represented engaged in sex. The sign here is the name she gives the child, which means God is with us. Nevertheless, the identity of this young woman is unclear and has been much debated. She might be the prophet's wife because there is precedent for prophets begetting symbols, sons, or she might be a woman in the house of David. And there are a lot of theories of who this could be, um, but there's just the mechanics of the Hebrew word Alma, not the Greek word that gets used in your New Testament. That's a different conversation entirely. Your Septuagint is also going to be quoted in that prophecy. But here in Isaiah, just in Isaiah, we're not talking about the Gospels. We're not talking about the New Testament. Here in Isaiah, that word uh, means that young woman. And the conversation here, just viewed in context, Brent, are we talking about a Messiah figure here in context? Isaiah 7? Uh, well, no. Yeah, not necessarily. Um, is the context Christmas, uh, 700 years from Isaiah's time? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Uh, you know, as we've looked at it, the context isn't even Christmas. <laughs> for yeah, that's Jesus. true. That's true. That's true. But there is my point is, and I know I always make everybody bristle at this because it feels like I'm taking something. I'm not taking anything away from Jesus and your gospels say what your gospels say and your gospels make the connections that they make for whatever reasons that we could discuss in those moments. But there is something taking place in Isaiah that Jesus readers typically completely miss because we keep jumping forward and making the story about something else primarily when there is an initial thing in its historical context that it's trying to to tell Ahaz. And so in the context of this, um, he, he's telling Ahaz about an impending doom. Um, like there is going to come a child. I, I personally think he's talking about uh, his own his own child, his own. Um, I think he's he's essentially saying his his wife is is either pregnant or going to be pregnant. And before, this is how soon, the prophecy is, this is how soon doom is coming. Like before this child is even, he won't even get out of childhood before destruction is on their doorstep. That's the immediate context of this prophecy. Whether it's Isaiah's son or Ahaz's son or somebody else's son, if there's a, if, if a woman becomes pregnant today, you will not even see this child grow into their adolescence before destruction is on your doorstep. Ahaz, you have to do the right thing. If you don't, this whole thing falls apart. And so that's the that's the invitation there in, in, uh, in Isaiah 7. Anything you'd add to that before we move to Isaiah 8? Well, I just wonder if this is like, like, do they, because it, the virgin term comes from the Septuagint translation, right? That's Correct. where they, they shifted the, they made it a more specific meaning. Yes. Um, and I just wonder if that's because like God's saying, ask the Lord, your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the, in the highest heights, he's like, whatever, like whatever sign you want, ask it. And then Ahaz says, I won't ask. And then, then, then it's like, okay, well then God's going to just give you a sign without you asking. And so if it's just a young woman conceiving, and maybe it's just the timing, but but I feel like maybe that's where it comes from is like, okay, well, if you're not going to ask, then I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you something so clear that it's going to be, I don't know. You could read it that way. I tend to read it because you refuse to ask for a sign. The only sign, kind of like when Jesus says to the Pharisees, like, this is the only sign you're going to get mm. is the sign of Jonah, the Gentiles believing. Like you had your chance to ask for a sign and because you won't, here's the sign you are going to have. Um, it's going to be the incoming destruction that's going to be on your doorstep. That will be your sign. Um, and I think he's connecting it to a particular time period. So you're not even going to be old. You're not even going to be 
It's not even going to be 40 years down the road. It's going to be less than 10. Yeah. Within the next decade, you're going to see destruction on your doorstep. So it depends on how – you could easily read it that way. You could read it the other way as well. Absolutely. Well, that, and that does make sense because the ultimate point of this image is is the age of the child when all of this stuff comes to pass. So Sure. Yeah. Okay. We're going to jump down to Isaiah 8. Yes. Uh, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen – Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Thank you for that one. Uh, so I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal, Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So to me, that settles the conversation. It, you don't have to read it that way. But two paragraphs later, I'm told about essentially the first the first half of the fulfillment of what he told Ahaz was going to happen. So Isaiah makes, makes love to his wife. She conceives exactly like he said she was going to. And then he names that son and references that same prophecy that before he's old enough, Assyria is on our doorstep. So for me, I, I'm not sure why there, there is such a debate. I'm sure there are reasons. But for me, the young woman that's being spoken of and addressed in Isaiah, in, in the text of Isaiah, is clearly his wife. But you can, you can do with that what you will. Um, I'm not trying to force anybody to think anything, but there you go. So what's the, what's the point of the scroll? Is the scroll just like, hey, I want you to write down this name, and then after this, the son is born, it's like, oh, yeah, use that name. Or is there something more to the to use to writing that name down first and then having the son and naming the son? Well, I would expect I was really hoping you weren't gonna ask me about the name, because I would expect the context that there would be insightful context in the meaning of the name itself. And I am lacking a footnote. Does the NET give you uh any notes on the meaning of I mean, I should know. Right now Ella's listening to this episode. <laughs> The screaming at me, shaking her head. Well, the footnote in the NIV even says uh, the Maher Shalal Hashbaz means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Ah, boy, I'd rather be his other son. I'll tell you that much right now. Um, his other son got the better name of the two. Um, but yeah, so the scroll, the point of the tablet is what my what my translation in front of me is is speaking at the point of the, yeah, I don't know why write it down. Boy, but what I am thinking about, and this is totally out of order, Brent, so you're at fault for this one for <laughs> sending the question my way. I'm thinking about Zachariah writing John's name on He can't speak, so he has to write John's name on a tablet. And I'm wondering now if it's a callback to Isaiah. Well, okay. But so the word for pen Yes. Is only used one other time in Tanakh. Okay. In Exodus 32. The golden calf. Yeah. Is it when he writes? He fashioned it with a with a graving tool or a whatever. Oh, man. Wow. Uh, what a callback. Um, goodness. I'm going to have to think about that process, what that could even, yeah, what that could even be calling back to and whatnot. Because um, I even, I wondered if it, because that's he's fashion he's fashioning the golden calf. I was wondering if it was God doing something with the tablets, um, because then he writes it on a tablet in my translation. Because that would have been another interesting connection, and it still might be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's juicy. Yeah, this is the good stuff where somebody will send us a Slack message or an email or something, and, and they'll be like, "Oh my goodness, I know, I know. Here it is." And then we'll we'll all put our blown mind emoji at the bottom of it. <laughs> uh, perfect. Okay. Moving on. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. 
Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Okay, so now we we read this and we kind of see this this coming full circle. The invitation, the invitation to trust, the invitation to stay, the invitation to let God do, you know, we, we always say trust the story, but to let God do what God's going to do and and all the things that Isaiah warned about, and we see those things starting to come to pass. So I think we're just going to keep moving through uh, through Isaiah 8 here, but I wanted to I wanted to link those passages up to Isaiah 7 um, and make sure that we saw the full context of what's taking place when we read that passage, when that verse gets quoted. And it's quoted by the Gospels. The Gospels quote that verse in reference to the birth of Jesus. So I'm not trying to undo those things. I'm simply wanting us to see, as we study Isaiah, I want us to see how that verse fits and works so we don't just see the verse and go, Messiah, 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 but we actually let the verse do its work within the larger text of Isaiah. So unless you have anything, Brent, we'll just keep on moving and keep reading through Isaiah chapter 8. Um, well, I just was struck by the forceful repetition of being shattered. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. I wonder if like, if anyone thought I accidentally read that line twice. No, it's actually yeah. in there twice. So Right, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think there's... We're supposed to we're supposed to notice that. Yep. Uh, this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Boy, I'm not going to add a whole lot of commentary here, but I feel like that's another bridge for us evangelicals in our space today we are i don't know how we have become this but we have become known as the one group of people that just believes any conspiracy that ever gets tossed our way we are conspiracy people and it's laden with this weird often it's 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 very socio-political fear and i feel like this passage is just so such a blatant beautiful reminder a call an invitation don't give way to conspiracy. Don't be driven by that kind of crazy, nonsensical fear and the pulling together. That's what the pagans do. Trust in God. Make sure that God is the one that you find your security in. God's the one that holds the future in his hands. Uh, yeah, I said I wasn't going to add a bunch of commentary, but I'll stop. Yeah, so uh, moving on, this is this is kind of funny. He says, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. He just got done saying that Assyria is going to wipe out Israel. Right. But it still says he will be a stone for Israel and Judah. Yep. There's a, yeah, there's a, an invitation to put your trust in the right places, no matter who you are. Even if you are a part of a, 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 a nation, there's always a shoot out of a stump. There's always a remnant. There's always put your trust in God. And we know how that story ends. Don't put your trust in God. And we also know how that story ends. So make your choice. I do love that. Um, so then at the end of chapter 15, uh, Alter in his translation, I noticed, does something very unique. The ESV well, doesn't do all, it. I think you meant verse 15. And I actually didn't quite finish reading it. So let me finish. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go back. He will be a, a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Yes. And then and then at that moment, Alter shifts the um the prophecy into like poetic prose. Now, my ESV that I'm looking at in front of me doesn't do that. Brent, I don't believe the NIV does that, does it? Yeah, NIV has sixteen and seventeen as part of the the I guess the poetry or whatever. Okay. Indented. Oh, so it, it is indented in the NIV? Yep. Oh, fascinating. What about verse 18? 18 is not. 18 is where they make the shift. And then 19 through 22? Yeah, that's also regular prose. Okay. I believe, let me look at, let me look at altar here. Yes. Okay. So now that I, now that I see altar, um, here's what my notes meant. Altar actually pushes everything into non-poetic prose at verse 16, um, which does change the way that that section reads and... Uh, he he does have a couple notes in the footnotes for anybody that's interested. You could look at that. But when something's in poetic prose, it just reads slightly different. Would you agree with that, Brent, than when you're looking at something that's 
non-indented, non-structured in that way. Yeah, and I'm starting to look at uh, some other translations. The ESV in this entire chapter only has verses 9 and 10 as poetic. Correct. Yes, I was looking at that as I had that open in front of me as well. Yep. And it definitely changes that because now, wrap up the testimony, uh, that just ends up sounding totally different as if it's instructional uh, to Isaiah rather than a part of the message being given. Yeah. And um, so I just found that to be interesting. I don't know if there's anything there, if anybody finds that interesting as they read it, but go ahead and go ahead and read us that. And maybe we can think about whether or not this, do we hear this as a part of what's being said to the people and the prophecy or something that's being recorded by Isaiah? So here's 16 and 17, which uh, is still still poetry in the NIV. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. All right. So if that's Isaiah, if that's either... Isaiah is either asking people to do that, or Isaiah is saying that's what he is doing, which looking at it, I again, I like Alter. I don't always necessarily agree with Alter, but I'm probably going to agree with him more than I don't. Um, and I like how that reads. I think Isaiah is seeing this, watching this, observing this, and now Isaiah is kind of stepping back and saying, golly, I'm going to wait and see what's what's going to happen here. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. And see, that feels to me like it fits this concept, like it, like it flows very, very easily. Unlike what the NIV has in front of you, Brent, I feel like that flows very easily out of what, what Alter suggests here, that it's a continual thought from Isaiah saying, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to sit on it and wait. I'm going to see what happens because here I sit as a member. And again, I, I think of Heschel. Uh, I think of our lat, uh, I think of our two introductory episodes where Heschel said that the prophet is not finger pointing at you. The prophet is standing in solidarity. And here's a very blatant passage where he's talking about here I am with you know my, my brothers, the children that God has given me. The I, I am amongst these people. I am with them. And you see that prophetic solidarity. So I, re- I really liked seeing that verse. NASB, by the way, agrees with Halter. I know we don't <laughs> we don't speak very highly of the NASB. Wow. But <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, when someone tells you to consult mediums and, in, and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their god. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. All right, and then I want to look at just basically keep going, seeing everything in context, reminding myself that the chapter breaks and the chapter numbers aren't even always there. And I want to just kind of hear, I want to keep moving into the first few verses of of chapter nine. It's starting to feel like we're doing every verse, but hang with me. We're not going to do that, <laughs> but we're going to keep moving into chapter nine and just kind of continue to hear this whole, unto, you know, uh, a virgin shall conceive and give birth. This, this whole kind of Isaiah seven eight not seven eight and now going into nine. Let's let's keep hearing what's what's being said. Well, and footnote on the beginning of chapter nine, it says that uh, in Hebrew text that the first verse of nine is actually numbered as chapter eight. Correct. So, like you know, emphasizing the the blurriness of these chapter breaks and these lines that we yep. that we put into the text. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever." The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right. So there we have another one of our great Christmas passages also showing up. And it comes in the same section and the same discussion. And this one is no doubt, unlike the last one, which I wouldn't call messianic at all. I don't think it's a messianic prophecy. This one completely is. And by saying that, I don't necessarily just mean Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is going to fulfill this. The gospel will make that super clear. But again, I don't want to race ahead. I do not want to race ahead and miss what Isaiah is doing if I'm trying to engage in the work of exegeting good hermeneutics, the prophet Isaiah. I want to hear that first so that then when I get to Jesus, it makes contextual sense and and you see the genius of the application. So when Isaiah utters this, 100% I would call it messianic because what he's envisioning, what he's calling for, what he's expecting is a a, a person, an individual. Like one individual could change the whole course of this, everybody. One, One king who wants to do what God asked him to do. One king who wants to be the kind of person that God asked him to be. One king who wants to trust the story and everything is going to be exactly as God, I don't want to say perfect, but everything is going to be what God's as earth on earth as it is in heaven kind of a situation. So he's calling for this hopeful optimism that one generation, one king, one ruler, one anybody, whoever it might be, not just a ruler, not just a political entity, but all it takes is people who are willing to trust the story and everything changes. And he talks about this restoration. Now he talks about the land of Naphtali, the land of Zebulun, and that's in the north. So he's speaking of, on some level, hope, not just to Judah, but to who, Brent? To Israel as well. To Israel as well. It's absolutely up north. It's in the Galilee. It actually references the Galilee up there. It's where we go on our trips when we're up in the Galil. That's the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So this this hope that he envisions isn't just a hope for his own tribe and his own clan, but he envisions a hope that's going to be relevant for everybody else because this is what God's doing in the world. Now, is that going to be seen in Isaiah's day, Brent? Question uh, mark? No. no. <laughs> or maybe yes. Uh, it's kind of a trick question. No matter what you said, I was going to do the opposite. Um, so there you go. I'm Thank so you. kind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because because you could say that in a lot of ways, the righteousness of Hezekiah, if you remember, Hezekiah is going to lead reed forms from the northernmost tip all the way up to Dan. You can, you've come with me before to Dan, haven't you, Brent? Yep. Yep, we went there last That's year. That's all the way up there. That's all the way up at the border of modern-day Israel. That's all the way up there, literally on the border. And then, so the northern, Hezekiah-led reforms from Dan all the way down to Beersheba and beyond. And so Hezekiah, in a lot of ways, did achieve a lot of this stuff, did lead reforms. There are other kings that did too, Hezekiah being the one that comes to mind when I think of Isaiah. So in some ways, this prophecy was fulfilled. Did it last forever? Was it was it a true full fulfillment? And now your answer makes more sense, Brent? No. And so when we see Jesus as the thing that Jesus is doing with the kingdom of God, an even better, an even bigger fulfillment, okay, well, now we're starting to put Jesus in a proper context so that I can hear what Isaiah is doing, and now I can see why the gospel writers are saying this is fulfilled in Jesus because they're saying, hey, remember Isaiah, remember Hezekiah, remember the obedience of some of these kings, but how it kind of failed us. Guess what? An even better obedience, that that thing that we experienced back then is now going to be experienced in an even better level, an even more full sense than we experienced it centuries ago. And that's, for me, that's helpful to see these passages in their original context first before I leap ahead and make any other connection before that. Because Isaiah is clearly not thinking about Jesus. He has no way of understanding that. Isaiah is uttering a prophecy about his day for his people in his context. Does it mean something to them? Yes. Was he wrong? No. He was right. And it was even fulfilled in part by people that walked in his day and in his context. But it was fulfilled even better 
in Jesus. And I think we know that, but that's why it's valuable to not undo the beauty of what's already sitting there. Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah. And I love, I love the image, um, of like, Hey, you're going to rejoice like a warrior rejoices, but actually the warrior stuff, we're just going to use that as fuel for our fire because we don't need that. Yep. Absolutely. I love it. Yep. Okay, let's jump to Isaiah 10. We're going to jump ahead a little bit and try to make up some ground. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Okay, so what is still proving to be the great threat? So you might have already forgotten about it. It was only one episode, handful of chapters ago, but we may have already gotten lost in the socio-political details. And yet what is the one thing that's threatening the very story and the people and what they're forsaking. So again, it's easy to get lost in the kings and the armies and resin and all these people and trusting that when it comes to going to war, or not going to war, and the woman will be with child. And, all. and yet underneath it all, there's this, there's this world that the people are partaking in. And what's this, what's this call that we hear about again in this, in this passage, Brent? Uh, to, to care for the poor and the oppressed. Yep. Yep. And somehow these things are, they're not side, they're not disconnected conversations. It is the very soil in which this world is growing that threatens this thing that God's wanting to do. So it's not just about the political leaders and rulers. It is about the people and what they've bought, and what they've bought into and who's building that world. And, and that's helpful for us to consider as well. But give us the rest of that little section there. Well, I think you had a note on on that uh, one phrase, where will you leave your riches? Yeah, the word there is kavod. Uh, we've talked about that word kavod before. And what does the word kavod mean? Brent, can you remember? Uh, glory. Yeah, weight, that weightiness. And so we talked about um, uh, Pharaoh and his heart being heavied or, or or any of those things. But that, that word kavod, that heaviness, that weightiness, that glory. So it's not just a flippant reference to prosperity and because there are words for that. I, I've learned them thanks to L. Like there are words for riches. There's words for material wealth. This is literally glory. It's the thing that makes you so significant. And and that's what what's being referenced there. What verse was that in, Brent? I was trying to find it. Uh, verse three. Where will you leave your wealth? The ESV says. Yeah. And that's that is your glory. Um, and it's, I, I think there's an insinuation. There is a connection between well, am I building my glory? Is it just my glory? Is it my name? Or am I trying to connect myself with God's name, God's glory? We've talked about Kadush Hashem um, all the way back in session two. Uh, but I think of those images when I think of this, this warning here on this call. Okay, moving on. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. Ouch. I dispatch him against a, pe a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy and to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? Has not Kalno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like... Arpad and Samaria like Damascus. Yeah, yeah. are they not? <laughs> uh, obviously. <laughs> we all know those names. Yeah. As my hand seized the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? All right. So the thing that I love about this section is it's a it's a wonderful place to make an observation that is obviously, or or not obviously, but but uh, but um, consistently true. Sometimes it's hiding more than others. But we often are talking about justice because I feel like the conversation needs to be weighted in that direction for the typical evangelical worldview and what we've done with theology and the application, the practice, the orthopraxy, the practice of that of that theology. But but there's really a marriage between our two. We have kind of like 
split apart and bifurcated two social worldviews. There is a worldview of individual personal responsibility, typically seen in like the more conservative ideology. And then there is a, there is a worldview of social responsibility, usually seen in, in what we would call the more liberal or progressive ideologies. And what the biblical conversation does, it is, it is unfamiliar with this bifurcation. It's unfamiliar with this division of social ideology. It's just completely, it's a foreign concept to the world of the Bible. And so what you see is this marriage of, if we're failing at social responsibility, it's because, because we as individuals, there's an individual responsibility a moral responsibility for the individual to have the right core values. But if the right core values are being held by the individual, if they're pursuing a right morality, then it has something to say about the poor, the foreigner. And that's why you can see such a dissonance in our worldview is there's no one side of this thing that's right. Each one of the, each one of these sides has something good, but we haven't married them in the same way that the Bible has. And so I find this section to be a wonderful example of that, a way to see it clearly, and a challenge because we're all drawn, I'm drawn, to one side of that that sociopolitical argument. I'm always drawn to one of those ideologies that I feel like is most appropriate and more at home. And yet at the end of the day, you know what I need in order to really see the – to find the fulfillment of that thing that I want to see, God's kingdom in the world? I need the other ideology to help me get there. And I see that in Isaiah's words here. This is not just the progressive worldview in Isaiah. This is also the conservative worldview in Isaiah. You have a personal responsibility to take part in the morality of God. And when you are doing that, that will look like a social responsibility that pursues justice. Um, And I always find it so interesting that you can't even this whole time I'm sitting here Whenever I talk about justice, just trying to tell myself, don't say the words social justice, don't say the words social justice, because it's such a buzzword that causes such a negative reaction for a whole group of people. And yet, that's a very prime example of why we can't hear so much of the biblical conversation, because it's a both and. It's a both and. It's the individual morality. It's the personal responsibility. It's also the social reality and the social responsibility. And you see that here in this passage. So thought I would point that out as we go through. And if you don't got anything, I'm ready to jump down to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Okay. And so here we have the same image of Netzer. And while I felt like the first image of Netzer had a much more communal feel to it when I read it. It was much more, I felt much more like the people. Not that it wasn't about individuals, but it was about the people. This one feels very much like he's thinking about and referencing an individual. Not that Isaiah would say for a moment, it's not applicable to any of his hearers and any of his readers, but he's envisioning, uh, again, one of those leaders. We could call this a messianic vision. Again, Again, not thinking all the way ahead of Jesus, just thinking of what Isaiah is wanting to see and call for is a leader of understanding, somebody who can parse the nuance and lead us to justice and restoration and shalom and wholeness. But he's utilizing that same picture of a netzer, a shoot, a branch coming. And now now that I say that, I'm wondering if it's the same word netzer here. I have to go check because <laughs> um, it may be a different word. It might be the word for branch, which would be different entirely. But you have that same idea, that same image of a pruned olive tree being employed here in Jewish thought. So um, I have this I have this hunch that it Brent— is, It is Netzer. Is it Netzer? Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I have this hunch that Brent is looking it up right now, so I'm pausing <laughs> to see what happens. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. That's right. All right. Keep, keep us going. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, 
and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, this beautiful, obviously hyperbolic, but this beautiful picture of shalom when we lead, when we lead with wisdom and understanding, with with I would assume words like hokma and and bina. When we lead with these these concepts of wisdom and understanding and ruling, and we make things that are that are anchored in justice, you have wholeness. You have you have literal ecological enemies lying down with one another. I, I can't but smile and think of L when I read about a lion becoming vegetarian. Um, like here, here's a lion eating grass like an ox. Like uh, it's, it's all of creation. It's death being abolished. It's the power of justice when it's pursued appropriately. And Isaiah paints this, like so many prophets, paints this poetic picture of what that Later in Isaiah, it's going to become a new heavens and a new earth, but it's that same image. It's that same concept of perfect shalom, perfect peace, um, finding its place. In that day, the root of Jesse, root being Sheresh, apparently, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Yeah, and you, and you see here just a continued extension of this prophetic image of what a world and perfect shalom. And again, this isn't, I wouldn't take this literally. This is literally what's going to happen in the future. It's a picture. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image of the world that God's trying to build is a world without boundaries. Uh, 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 obstacles would be the word I'd look for. There's there's no mountain passes to get in my way. There's a highway. There's no gulf at Egypt. That's you can just go back and forth between these people who are currently enemies. Like this vision of what happens when shalom reigns, when justice is pursued, it can restore things. It can put things. And again, I'm not left with this over, um, this overwhelming cynicism. And it's not like Isaiah gave these all these prophecies back to back to back. Like sometimes there were years in between some of these prophecies. And yet some of his prophecies are filled with beautiful, inspiring visions of what could be when you choose to do it God's way. What what could be when you choose to trust the story. What could be when you give up this pursuit of self-preservation. And, and I just love there there's there's not just this sprinkling of hope. Like this hope is so pervasive and what's driving again that idea of pathos. The the prophet isn't just feeling the anger, the frustration, the the negative emotions of God. The prophet's also experiencing the hope of God, the goodness of shalom, where this all could go. And and the prophet is always mixing that into the prophecy as well. And uh, just a obviously a beautiful chapter. And I love the the picture and the image. And you know, again with the with the chapter breaks, like this this next part in chapter twelve flows directly from that. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Absolutely. So this, this connection to worship um, that, that comes out of what I'm experiencing in a world of shalom in that day, this will be what you will experience. So 100%. Finish out the whole rest of this super large chapter, Brent. Get us out of here. <laughs> in that day, you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. 
Make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Yeah, and and again, I just... I know we've given like passing comments to hope. I know it was a big part of our study in session two. But in a world where it's so easy to be overwhelmed by cynicism, in a world where it's so easy to just be hyper-focused on the bankruptcy of the church and God's people and all the ways that we've failed and all that stuff, what I love about Isaiah is he doesn't ignore that stuff. He doesn't tell people to get over it. He condemns the things that need to be condemned. He talks about impending judgment and and the coming destruction. He talks about God's pruning. He He pulls no punches. All that stuff is there, and yet he does not lose hope in this thing that God is doing. I love those sections, not just because the prophet gives a sprinkling of hope, but because I am too often tempted to completely surrender to cynicism and despair. Um, God is doing something. Like, God will win. Shalom is where this is all headed. Justice is the ark of the universe. That is where God is. God is putting the world back together. God is asking us to to join him. That is where the story is headed. And I love those little reminders sprinkled in the midst of prophets, which can be at times very difficult to read. Uh, One more thing before we leave. I did have a question. We titled this episode, Let the Man Cook. What was that a reference to? (laughs) I forgot to, it was in my own personal notes and I forgot to bring it up, Brent. Uh, It was when we were talking about Ahaz at the very, very beginning. Um, And I got, I think I got all all overwhelmed. I I, I got too amped up and passionate about whatever we were talking about. But (laughs) what God was asking Ahaz to do is just wait, just wait. Just, I know that you're overwhelmed. I know that they've allied against you. I know, but I need you to sit there and do nothing. And I was going to, I was going to use the phrase, I need you to just let me cook. Like, let me do what I'm doing. Um, So I was going to hearken that phrase, you know, let the man cook, let him do what he's doing. God's got something going on. Like you watch these wonderful, usually funny uh, TikToks and different things. And it's, and the caption will be, let him cook, just let him cook as they're doing something crazy and incredible. And, and that's what came to mind as I thought about Hey, just just sit back and let just watch what God's going to do because it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be crazy. So that's where that title came from. Okay, well that does it for this episode. We'll uh, we'll let God cook on these ideas with us for the for the next week. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right, you can go to baymonaseptship.com to find show notes. I don't know if we had any links for this episode, but uh, plenty of things that have shown up in the last couple episodes. So you're probably still busy digging into all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, everything you need to know is at the website. So thanks for joining us on the Baymo podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.